Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We've got an important one today, you know, uh, for a change. Uh, because uh, our system of justice is in jeopardy. And we have Dahlia Lithwick from uh, Slate with us, uh, who is a great writer on jurisprudence, and Ian Basson from uh, Head of Project Democracy, which measures democracy not just around the world, but here in the United States. And that's what this crisis is about. On Thursday, Judge Amy Berman Jackson sentenced Roger Stone to 40 months in, in prison for lying to Congress and witness tampering, and she couldn't have been more straightforward and eloquent, so I'm just going to quote her. At trial, the defense appropriately questioned Randy Credico's credibility and Rick Gates' credibility, but it was largely Stone's own emails and his own texts that proved the allegations beyond a reasonable doubt. So what did the defense say to the jury on his behalf? So what? So what? Of all the circumstances in this case, that may be the most pernicious. The truth still exists. The truth still matters. Roger Stone's insistence that it doesn't, his belligerence, his pride in his own lies, are a threat to our most fundamental institutions, to the very foundation of our democracy. And if it goes unpunished, it will not be a victory for one party or another. Everyone loses because everyone depends on the representatives they elect to make the right decisions on a myriad of issues, many of which are politically charged, but many of which aren't, based on the facts. Everyone depends on our elected representatives to protect our elections from foreign interference based on the facts. No one knows where the threat is going to come from next time, or whose side they're going to be on, and for that reason, the dismay and disgust at the defendant's belligerence should transcend party. The dismay and disgust at the attempts by others to defend his actions as just business as usual in our polarized climate should transcend party. The dismay and disgust with any attempts to interfere with the efforts of prosecutors and members of the judiciary to fulfill their duty should transcend party. Sure, the defense is free to say, so what? Who cares? But I'll say this, Congress cared. The United States Department of Justice and the United States Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia that prosecuted the case and is still prosecuting the case cared. The jurors who served with integrity under difficult circumstances cared. The American people cared, and I care. This is Judge Amy Berman Jackson. 
This case also exemplifies why it is that this system, for good reason, demands that the responsibility falls to someone neutral. Someone whose job may involve issuing opinions in favor of and against the same administration in the same week. And not someone who has a long-standing friendship with the defendant. Not someone whose political career was aided by the defendant. And surely not someone who has personal involvement in the events underlying the case. That, that, by the way, would be the President of the United States. The court cannot be influenced by those comments. They were entirely inappropriate. But I will not hold them against the defendant either. It would be equally improper to be buffeted by the winds blowing from the left, the enthusiastic callers who object to what the defendant stands for. I cannot and will not sentence him for the behavior of those he supports. Sentencing is personal, and it's based on the evidence. This I love. The only people who think this is easy are the ones who don't have to make the decision. Many people weighed in, formally through letters, informally by calling chambers, pontificating on cable TV, and in blogs, op-eds, and tweets. Unquote. Didn't say podcast, so here I am. I have received letters urging me not to silence an important voice in the public arena. That's, I guess, Roger Stone. But that will not be an element of the sentence in any way. I expect he will keep talking. And as you've just heard, when I went through the elements of the offense, he was not convicted and is not being sentenced for exercising his First Amendment rights, his support of the president's campaign or his policies. He was not prosecuted, as some have complained, for standing up for the president. He was prosecuted for covering up for the president. The reason this one is so important today is um, our democracy is teetering right now. We have Dahlia Lithwick, who you've heard from uh, before, and uh, who's from Slate, and Ian Basson, who is from Project Democracy, to speak to this perilous time that we live in. Oh, boy. Have fun. This past week, we just had a debate in Las Vegas, and nobody brought this subject up. And and I know the candidates all want to destroy each other. Uh, that's what you do at this point in the campaign uh, to you know try to show that you are the best candidate to beat Trump. But I think part of showing that is to demonstrate that you can talk to the American people. You can talk to both Democrats and Republicans about what a dangerous point we're at, what a crisis point we're at in our democracy if Trump believes that he can become the law unto himself and actually do it, achieve it. And I know, Dahlia, you're as incensed about this as as I am, so why don't you, uh, why don't you begin? I essentially started a week ago when we had four prosecutors walk off the Roger Stone case. One walked right out of the Justice Department after uh, Attorney General Bill Barr essentially withdrew their proposed sentencing recommendation for Stone. And that happened after Trump had tweeted demanding as much. And then we had 
kind of a lot of drama where Barr goes on ABC and says, I wasn't going to be bullied into doing what the president wanted. So I did what the president wanted. But I wish he'd stop tweeting, at which point the president continued tweeting. Then we had a really interesting weekend where we had uh, 2,000 former DOJ uh, employees signing a public document saying that Barr should resign. Uh, We had uh, Donald Ayer, who was the deputy attorney general under George H.W. Bush, put a piece in The Atlantic saying that Bill Barr's America is freaking terrifying. And uh, we had the Federal Judges Association, which is an independent organization of judges, holding an emergency meeting to try to talk about what was happening at the Justice Department. All of this happened while Trump continues to tweet threats at the Mueller team, continues to tweet what look like threats or certainly seems to be intimidation toward one of the jurors in the Stone jury uh, and the judge. Uh, All that is going on. And as you said, most of life is just going on as normal as the Justice Department becomes kind of suddenly a machine that goes after Trump's enemies and exculpates Trump's friends. It's it's a worry. Ian, is rule of law important in democracy? (laughs) It is the cornerstone (laughs) of democracy because uh I think the sculptor who was hired uh, to put the finishing touches on the Department of Justice building in Washington actually etched into one of the stones in the building equal justice under law. Um, So literally, it's it's in the stone of the Justice Department, equal justice under law. And that's what's at stake. And I agree with you. It should be one of the top topics being discussed by people who want to assume the presidency. Um, Because I'd go back further than a week. And I I, I hear, Dalian, why this week has been so alarming. But I actually, I want to rewind back maybe 14, 15 years, right? And here's why I want to go back 14, 15 years. Because put this all in context. Freedom House, which is an organization that studies democracies around the world, including whether they have rule of law based societies, and it's been doing that since pretty much the end of World War II, had basically been tracking in its data that democracies had been improving and spreading to more countries through most of the latter half of the 20th century until about 15 years ago. And about 15 years ago, you start to see that data go into a retreat. And there are countless scholars who have studied this and pointed out that. What is happening in places like Hungary, where Viktor Orban has dismantled Hungarian democracy, or Venezuela, where Nicolas Maduro has dismantled Venezuelan democracy, is part of a trend in the 21st century of democracies fading and autocrats rising. And one of the things that all of these autocrats do is they try to turn law enforcement into a weapon to go after their opponents, lock her up, lock her up, and protect their friends. Go easy on stone. Go easy on stone. Those societies are not democracies. They're autocracies. Um, and I think it's, it's notable that 2,500 now former Department of Justice officials who signed that letter point out in it that societies that use law enforcement to go after the government's enemies and protect its friends aren't representative democracies and, and constitutional republics anymore. What's heartening about this is that uh, after Trump was acquitted, even before he was acquitted, uh, Susan Collins uh, said that uh, he was going to learn from this, that he learned a lesson from this. Then he said uh, his phone call was perfect uh, the next day. He said that. And then she voted 
to quit anyway. This is just giving him license, he feels, right? He is headed full-throatedly toward what we always feared this guy was. Yeah, Adam Serwer has an excellent piece in The Atlantic this week um, where he basically says we are witnessing the ending days of the Trump administration and the first days of the Trump regime. Um, he sort of invokes a turning point in you know the end of the Roman Republic. And there are some who would call that hyperbolic and uh, sky is falling. Uh, and I think it's worth us saying, I hope that it is hyperbolic, right? We hope that he's wrong. But let's not be caught flat-footed if he's right, because the lesson that most of the autocrats learn is if they push on a check on their power and the check falls, they push further, right? And that's the lesson that uh, Donald Trump learned from being acquitted for abusing his power is that the current Republican Party is simply not going to hold him accountable or provide that, any sort that's of That's what he learned from, the, from this. That's what he learned, right? That's right. You keep saying, well, okay, we're the United States of America. This can't happen here. But we know who this guy is. And we're seeing a Republican Party that is completely unable to counter him, just scared to death of him. And once the fear is there, then he's two-thirds of the way there. I think that one of the things that I've been mulling this past week, and I completely agree with Ian, that I think part of the problem here is that the rule of law is so baked into any sort of foundational theory of constitutional democracy that everyone believes that it is made of steel, that it is inviolable and cannot be violated, and all these systems exist. Uh, to make sure that the rule of law is protected. And what I think we've certainly learned in the last few weeks and months is that actually, no, it's a bunch of soft norms. Uh, Some of them are hard norms, but they're just norms. And if, in fact, uh, Alexander Vindman is to be marched out of the White House uh, for having done nothing more than testify truthfully, something has changed and we don't know what it is and we can't name it and we can't identify it. It seems that to me what's really been fascinating is for Bill Barr to simply insert himself into the stone sentencing recommendation and then to act as though this happens all the time and that the attorney general does special favors for the president's confederates and colleagues. Uh, And we all just think, well, maybe that is what happens. Maybe this has always been the case that the attorney general is just the president's personal fixer. Uh, I think it's happening – both in a really compressed amount of time and happening in ways that make it not discernible to the naked eye what's going on. If you had told me you could have gotten 2,000 former Justice Department employees to sign the kind of statement that was signed last weekend, I would have been shocked. But the fact is, I don't know that anybody noticed or cared. One person certainly noticed and cared, and that's the Attorney General. Because (laughs) the the Attorney General has clearly backtracked. So um, in the Stone sentencing, Judge Amy Berman Jackson questioned the new DOJ prosecutor on the case about which sentencing enhancements the department was recommending. And in some of those cases, um, the prosecutor in the courtroom relied on the first 
sentencing uh, recommendations, the ones that Barr had countermanded, suggesting perhaps that DOJ was backtracking. And I think the public statements from Barr recently that you know he, he can't do his job if the president keeps weighing in, whether one takes them at face value or not, whether one thinks Barr is being genuine or not, I think one thing that is clear is Barr realizes he is losing the building. He is losing the support of the staff that he um, oversees. And he knows he can't do the job if he loses the building. And so the effect, I think, of that letter has been to force him to figure out ways to win back the building, perhaps by being a little bit stronger on these things. And it's important to recognize the impact that statements like that have, because in moments like this, where democracies are challenged by autocratic movements, um, especially where the institutions, whether it's Congress or the courts, aren't doing everything that is necessary to check those, it really does fall to all of us. It falls to civil society. And the fact that these retired alumni of the department spoke out and had an impact really does underscore that we, we can make a difference. We do still have certain powers um, as a free society. Okay, uh, we, we, have to, we have to break for a commercial. And uh, here it is. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Now, one of the things that to me was really interesting is that, yeah, Barr responded saying, uh, I can't do my job if, if you keep tweeting, if you tweet. And Trump just doubled down, kept tweeting. And Barr's still there. So, I mean, to me, Barr was just saying, Come on, man, don't blow our cover. And Trump has this instinct, which has kind of proven real, that he's right, that he can go further than anyone ever thought he could go. You know, the day after Mueller testifies, boom, Zelensky, shaking down a guy. And 
he's just emboldened by this, and he knows something about either the American people or he knows something about being an autocrat or it's all instinctual because of his pathological narcissistic personality, but it's working. His, his approval ratings have gone up during this period. I think that one of the things that is super interesting, and again, I commend the, the Donald Air piece from The Atlantic last weekend. I think one of the things that's very interesting is um, I have sort of artlessly named this phenomenon the sort of constitutionalization of Donald Trump's narcissism. But I think that there is a good. weird way in which he authentically believes that he has, you know, in his view, this sort of limitless uh, Article Two power that can go unchecked because nothing, nothing doesn't answer to it. And in a weird way, when Barr auditioned, right, with that memo to be the new attorney general, he more or less reinforced that. He he put forth this unitary executive theory. He more or less has been the architect of the idea that Donald Trump doesn't answer to anybody in a court and also not to Congress. There is no scenario in which uh, Donald Trump uh, has to subordinate his authority to any other branch of government. And so in a weird way, they have this mutually reinforcing theory of this unitary executive, this all-powerful uh, uh, executive branch that stands head and shoulders above the other branches. And and Barr has given that real sort of muscle and force. Uh, and so there's a strange way in which between the two of them, they are cooking up a theory of the presidency and presidential power that maps perfectly onto Donald Trump's view of himself in the world. And so it's just an interesting moment when you can see, again, this subtle slip into authoritarianism, into these kind of King George ideas. Let's look at some terms. Uh, the unitary executive. Now, one of the alarming things I thought that happened during this whole impeachment process was the blanket refusal to obey any subpoena. Now, that seemed unprecedented, was it? Absolutely. I served at the White House Counsel's Office, and when Congress would subpoena or simply seek testimony from the executive branch, there was always a negotiation that went on. It was called the accommodation process, where the executive would meet with uh, Congress and say, look, uh, you know, we have our concerns and considerations and certain privileges, and you have your ob you know, things that you need to do. And this is about there's executive privilege when you have to be able, the president has to be able to, you know, speak openly and confide in just all of his people, and that is protected. But there's some stuff that right. isn't protected, and that's what your negotiation was about, right? That's right. And you always, you generally, at the end of the day, you still had to appear Right. And if you wanted to invoke a privilege with respect to a particular piece of information, you invoke that privilege, but you don't just not appear at all. And then the other key thing about these privileges is privileges are designed to protect, as you know, the ability of the president to get candid advice from his or her advisors. That's right. That's right. It's not designed to hide misbehavior or corrupt activity. 
And to the extent that it's being used to block the Congress from finding about, out about possible misbehavior that could lead to an impeachment, it's wholly, wholly out of the ballpark as a reasonable position or theory. And, and of course, the theory was disingenuous because the, the White House lawyers said to Congress, you can't get this information. You have to go to the courts and subpoena it and the courts have to weigh in. And then they turned around and said to the courts, you have no jurisdiction over this. This is Congress's job. So it wasn't even a genuine theory. It was just sycophancy for a president who, as Dahlia said, really views himself more monarch than um, constitutional executive. You know what struck me during the trial? The White House counsel would argue both of these. This is taking too long. It's too close to the election. There's that. And also, you should have gone to court. Part of the reason the House didn't go to court was, one, was that the Trump lawyers argued that it didn't belong in the court. But the other was that the House didn't do that because they knew it would take a long time. So basically, the White House counsel was having it both ways which is, why didn't you go to court? And also, this is going to take too long. Yeah, no, it was preposterous. And it was also preposterous, I think, to make the claim that we can resolve all this in the 2020 election when the president was charged with trying to manipulate the 2020 election. I think Adam Schiff must have made that point 100 times, that the election itself is compromised by this kind of conduct. So the That's idea what it that was about. That's what this was about. It, and exactly. But but I think, you know, both of those things, both the, the, the sort of uh, fallacious, you know, oh, we'll, 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 this gets resolved in courts, except we're going to block it in courts and have blocked it historically in courts. And also the idea that this doesn't impact the 2020 election. I think all of that was just ridiculous, futile, trying to get to the end of the thing. But I also think you make a point that I think is really important, which is the the senators who were charged with oversight of that trial, who were charged with being open-minded, fair-minded jurors, and who made the decision to have no witnesses and no testimony for the first time in a Senate impeachment trial. But I think that this goes to just a fundamental misunderstanding of what the checks and balances in play were, that this wasn't just about did Donald Trump or did he not make this phone call to Zelensky to extort, you know, oppo research in exchange for aid. That was the narrowest possible definition of the case. The point was, can this president be stopped and checked or not? And the fact that Republicans in the Senate didn't look down the line, as you said at the beginning, and, and say, hey, if we allow this to go unchecked, he will be emboldened to do more and more things that are going to make this look like a cakewalk, like nothing. Nobody seemed to feel any sort of institutional responsibility to deter future acts of this sort. One of the real lessons, and I don't in any way mean to say that it doesn't matter that more than 2,000 people signed that statement. I think it's extraordinary, and I do think it matters. But I think that the larger lesson for me is the John Kellys, the John Boltons, the people who slink off into the night, who, you know, the Rex Tillersons, who throw their hands up in the air, and given the opportunity to have any kind of role in this process, either sell their books or give paid speeches, that, to me, is the really alarming part of this, that anybody who seems to have an opportunity, with the exception maybe of Mitt Romney, to stand up and say, hey, I have a role in checking this out-of-control executive branch, makes the decision to, like, go get lunch instead. 
part of that is a failure of imagination on many of their parts. Um, you know, our organization is cross-ideological, cross-partisan. We have Republicans on staff. We have Democrats on staff. Um, we work across the aisle uh, with both parties on reforms. Um, and one of the things that I've gathered from some interactions with um, some Republicans these days is that there seems to be a general consensus that Trump is embarrassing, that he's immoral, that he's unethical, that he's unintelligent, um, all of those things, but not a real grappling with the fact that he's dangerous. Um, and I think that's something that I would suspect a lot of the Boltons and Kellys and Tillersons and some of the senators, Collins, et cetera, um, really that's the line. They cannot almost imagine that America could go down the road uh, towards autocracy. The, it, you know, can it happen here, the Sinclair Lewis question. They can't imagine that the answer is yes. And they sort of feel like, well, this guy, this, this bumbling guy, I don't think he can do it. And so um, to be as generous as possible, they come up with ways of perhaps not fomenting in what they view, what maybe say Lamar Alexander views as potentially an even greater crisis. And I think that that failure of imagination is perhaps the scariest thing that we face as a country because, of course, we know from history that no constitutional republic or democracy goes on forever. Um, there's always the possibility of things ending and changing, and we almost need people in America to realize. That's why I think it's good the three of us are sitting here using the word authoritarianism over and over again. People need to realize not only is it possible, it's actually trending around the world, and that's why we need our presidential candidates to talk about how we all need to wake from our slumber in order to prevent it from happening here, because it absolutely can. Ian, we've spoken before about democracy and how Americans, Americans feel about democracy. And you've noticed some trends where people that are younger are less inclined to say that's an essential part of America. Yeah, we have a, a senior advisor on our team who's also a professor at Johns Hopkins, um, Yasha Monk, who's done some empirical research about public perceptions of democracy around the, both in the United States and around the world. 30 years ago, one in 16 Americans said they would be comfortable with the idea of military rule in the United States. Um, in the last couple of years, that number has dwindled to one in six would be comfortable with the idea of military rule. And the bulk of that shift is young people of Americans over 65 actually, years old. Actually, it hasn't dwindled. It's increased. If right, I know my exactly, fractions. Yes. One-sixth is bigger than one-sixteenth. Uh, so, so, right, more, more people today in America would be comfortable with the idea of military rule. Of Americans who are over 65, nearly three-quarters um, feel that democracy is a necessary form of government. Of Americans under 30, only a third do. Jesus. And one wonders, why is this? What is happening? Um, and in some ways, there are some potentially logical explanations for it. If you grew up in the United States in the latter half of the 20th century, especially if you were white, um, you could expect that you would have a standard of living that was higher than your parents. And whatever flaws democracy had, the Churchillian notion that it was the worst form of government except for all the rest was visibly staring you in the face because the alternative was, was the breadlines of the Soviet Union, the lack of freedom of the Soviet Union. Um, that's the era in which I grew up. I'm, I'm Gen X. If... 
you grew up more in the millennial era. The Soviet Union is gone, right? You are not not only are you not guaranteed to do better than your parents, you're you're more likely to move into their basement. Uh, you know, after you if you're lucky enough to graduate, saddled by dad. That's if you graduate at all. What does your future job opportunity look like when robots are going to be doing it? And gee, what's the alternative out there? It's not actually the failing Soviet Union. It's the rising China, right? It's the double-digit GDP growth of the authoritarian state in Turkey. The other models out there look not so bad. And what does your what does your own democracy look like? Look at what our democracy is doing over the last couple of years. It looks dysfunctional. So there are reasons why I think uh, you're seeing this rise in in openness to alternative forms of government, and that's not just happening in the United States. Pew Research did some uh, did a survey um, just a couple of months ago showing that that openness to alternative forms of government outside of democracy is growing around the world. Um, and so, th- well, again, we're, we're just seeing to go back out to where you started, the presidential candidates need to be addressing this because it is, along with climate change, I think the fundamental challenge of our time. Yeah, it's, it's also an existential threat. That's right. To and it's United very hard States. to deal with existential threats like the climate if you don't have a functional government. That's right. There's something about American exceptionalism, American notions that this stuff is all carved into stone, uh, that, you know, the American dream is alive and living and we're all great and we're all free and we don't have a king and everybody has a vote, that it, it's almost as though we've we've watched this Western, you know, this movie so many times over and over on a loop that it both blinkers us to what is actually happening in front of us. It blinkers us to the kind of palpable declines in democratic institutions and and, and uh, norms that we're seeing. And it also, I think, maybe in a way, this goes to Ian's point about failure of imagination, but it means that we, we can't even begin to believe that it could happen here. And I would just say, this is the depressing thing I am going to say, which is one of the things that I read on a loop um, is the Nuremberg judges' trial. Uh, not fun reading, but it's not the Nuremberg trials as we think of it. These aren't Nazis. They're just the judges uh, and the prosecutors, and it's the separate trial that they All right. uh, were, when they were put on trial. And it's really just interesting because I think we have these very magical ideas about courts and judges and laws and how they do the right thing and that statutes are good and judges are good and, and prosecutors are fair. It's really useful to know that even things like judges and prosecutors and statutes and the rule of law can be pressed into service to authoritarian ends and that to just sort of mollify yourself with, look, we have courts and cops and it's all good because we have these instruments of democracy without looking at the ways that they can be warped and changed to do real harm. I think it's just it's a way in which we're very, very fanciful about the machinery of justice and democracy without necessarily looking really hard at what it's doing. We're about to pass a threshold that I don't think people really grasp. And that's what you're talking about, Dahlia. There's there's this this feeling that we're in America. This can't happen here. We've got to be vocal about it, and our candidates have to be vocal about it. And we have to be vocal about who this guy is. I'm fine with our candidates, you know, expressing the difference, pointing out the differences between themselves you know, each advocating for himself or herself. 
But at a certain point, what this election is about is if Donald Trump gets reelected, there is danger afoot. It's funny because I've, I've kind of clearly been on the same roller coaster as Ian Basson um, because I, I also have just really taken what's happened at the Justice Department to heart. For me, it's been really difficult to see Donald Trump going after jurors. I think that's a, a foundational Something has broken there that I think we haven't paid enough attention to. Uh, the idea that the Mueller team are going to be sort of somehow punished uh, for for what they did in the Stone prosecution terrifies me. Uh, I would just note that the idea that we are now somehow conscripting random U.S. attorneys to review both the Mueller prosecution and the Flynn prosecution, this stuff is just not normal. It's scary. I got to put it as bluntly as possible. We cannot allow this guy to be reelected because he has just captured the Republican Party. I thought there are morally serious people who are my Republican colleagues, former Republican colleagues in the Senate, and they all folded. As much as we can admire the people who stood up, those four prosecutors, one of whom left the Justice Department, it is frightening that all these Republicans are falling in line. This is an existential threat, this election, in so many ways, but in terms of our democracy. Because what happens if he is reelected? I mean, if he will do this now, what will happen if he has four years? Think about that. I mean, he is doing stuff now that is shocking to you. That is shocking to the two of you. That's what he's doing now. That's what he's doing now. He gets reelected. Will we recognize this country in three years? Anyway, uh, listen, I think we should cut for a break. Uh, when we come back, we'll be talking about some of the uh, fun uh, stuff uh, in democracy and all the uh, optimistic uh, things that are happening. Right back. The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Uh, we're back uh, with Dahlia Lithwick, 
and with Ian Bass. And, and in, in view of what has been happening the last few weeks after the acquittal of um, <clears throat> President Trump in the impeachment trial and the uh, following demonstration of the lesson he learned. And by the way, Roger Stone, worst, one of the worst friggin' human beings in the world. Would you two agree, or is that not your job? <laughs> I've never met the man, um, but his impact on our democracy, I would say, is not a salutary one, shall we say. There you go. You don't That's have a, a, a protect democracy in index, index of worst people in the world, Ian. That should be something you all should <laughs> We're, we're going to do an record. insert in worst next week's People, people Magazine world. that will do, do some ratings like that. <laughs> I'm going to say something that I think is, is helpful. I'm going to say something upbeat. Oh, thank God. I think that Roger Stone is emblematic of the thing that threads through both what both of you are saying, uh, which is there is a way in which we have become spectators to democracy. <laughs> and Roger Stone, I think, is emblematic of the sort of reality show performance art. It's all just a joke. My dirty tricks don't have real impacts. Everything is fun. Randy Credico never really thought I was going to kill his dog. You know, the whole showmanship and the whole it's all just fun and we're having a rollicking good time quoting movies uh, and threatening the judge while the trial is pending. I think that part of the problem is that we are sliding into this torpor of thinking that this is how democracy happens, that it's just a really interesting reality show. And I think it's one of the reasons that the debates can be so frustrating because they're not actually talking about threats to the rule of law. They're they're taking pot shots at each other for all the reasons, Al, that may, may or may not be good reasons. But I think that there is this impulse to just lean back and watch. And into that vacuum, the Roger Stones will crawl. And so I think maybe one way to think about this, and I'm just thinking about what Ian's saying about these four prosecutors who left the case. They didn't give press conferences. They didn't get a reality show. They don't, they're not hawking Nike products this week. <laughs> they're just really quietly hoping that we see in them the heroism that they uh, have in fact, performed. And I think one of the things we have to do as part of sort of taking responsibility for democracy is to stop wanting to be entertained and to realize that entertainers, quote unquote, entertainers like Roger Stone are deeply, deeply nihilist and dangerous. And whether he's a good person or a bad person to me is immaterial. The fact is he is not a serious person. He is not an ethically, morally serious actor on the national stage. And the fact that he is performing uh, all the way to the, you know, prison apparently uh, is, is part of the problem. You know what I want to do? I want to do so. I want to change it a little bit here because I just want to talk about Bill Barr for a second. I... I really, 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 really hated the press conference he gave before the Mueller report was released. But I want to play a few clips from that and just talk about who Bill Barr is for a second. Let's go right to clip one. Put another way, the special counsel found no collusion by any Americans 
in IRA's illegal activities. Okay, that was accurate. Now, he kept saying in the press conference, no collusion, no collusion, no collusion. But that was very precise. It was no collusion by any Americans in the IRA's illegal activity. But let's continue with this no collusion thing. Let's go to two. But again, the special counsel's report did not find any evidence that members of the Trump campaign or anyone associated with the campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in these hacking operations. In other words, there was no evidence of the Trump campaign collusion with the Russian government's hacking. Okay, now he's using collusion, which is not a term that was used in the Mueller report. In fact, Mueller on page two says, I'm not using collusion because it's not illegal. It's not in the code, right? So this guy, in a very tortured way, keeps saying there was no collusion. And now he just keeps using the words. And this one is really tortured. Uh, Let's play uh, number three. The special counsel also investigated whether any member or affiliate of the Trump campaign encouraged or otherwise played a role in these dissemination efforts. Under applicable law, publication of these types of material would not be criminal unless the publisher also participated in the underlying hacking conspiracy. Here, too, the special counsel's report did not find that any person associated with the Trump campaign illegally participated in the dissemination of the materials. Okay, you're both lawyers. Can, can you just, either of you, just speak to that? Yeah, he's playing a whole bunch of tricks in, in, in this presentation. Um, trick one, he says that there is no evidence. Okay, if you read the Mueller report, there, the, the Mueller report is very careful about how it characterizes different claims that it analyzes. And it it basically breaks them down into three categories, uh, categories where they could definitively say that the thing alleged happened, um, categories where they could definitively say the thing alleged didn't happen, and categories where they didn't have enough evidence to say that it definitively happened and therefore they couldn't, you know, say that it happened in, in a manner that they could present to a court uh, to argue beyond a reasonable doubt. There was a lot of stuff in the report in that middle category um, where they just didn't have enough evidence to say it definitely happened and therefore you know, they couldn't conclude that it happened. And then on top of that, at the, in the introduction to the Mueller report, there's a section that talks about the fact that um, because they couldn't get full cooperation um, from some witnesses and because they suspected that some witnesses may have actually destroyed evidence or otherwise obstructed, it's possible that there's other evidence out there um, that might suggest different things than they found in the report. Um, Barr just completely you know, ignores all of that and makes the claim that there was no evidence of, as you pointed out, this sort of non-legal term collusion. That's just not an accurate representation of what the Mueller report said. And I think that's not my opinion. Um, I think that's Bob Mueller's opinion because, as you recall, Bob Mueller called uh, William Barr after this and was upset about the characterizations because presumably that was Mueller before this press conference. Characterized. That was yeah. before oh, right. the press conference. That was after the letter, the four-page letter came out. So, okay, so Barr's me... doing this even after he's been warned that he's mis- misrepresenting the report. 
Let me read through this again. Okay, the special counsel, this is what he says. The special counsel also investigated whether any member or affiliate of the Trump campaign encouraged or otherwise played a role in these dissemination efforts. Well, by the way, it, they did. They did play a role. And guess who did? Who, who did play a role in that, disseminating these that would, uh, and coordinating that? That would be Roger Stone. That would be Roger Stone, who worked with WikiLeaks. So he says in this sentence, the special counsel also investigated whether any member or affiliate of the Trump campaign encouraged or otherwise played a role in these dissemination efforts. Well, they found they did. But that was blacked out, right? That was uh, because it was the indictment at that point. It was in the indictment. Now, now this is beautiful. This is beautiful. I'm not a lawyer. But I'm fascinated by this kind of thing. This is what he says. Under applicable law, okay, right away, I'm, I'm suspicious, okay? <laughs> Publication of these types of materials would not be criminal unless the publisher also participated in the underlying hacking conspiracy. So, yeah, I mean... WikiLeaks, did they, were they involved in the hacking conspiracy? I don't know. Was Roger Stone or a member of the campaign involved in the hacking conspiracy? Well, there's no proof of that. So in order for this to be some kind of conspiring under law, you have to be involved in the hacking. So here, too. It goes on. Here, too, the special counsel's report did not find that any person associated with the Trump campaign illegally participated in the dissemination of the materials. Is there a term for wording something so in such a tortured way that it's so evident that you're putting those words together in such a very specific way that you're skirting the truth. It's it's what zealous defense lawyers do. What Barr was doing there is being a zealous defense lawyer for the interests of the president. That's not the job of the Department of Justice. The, the wonderful thing about the Department of Justice is it's there to represent the United States and serve justice and truth. And that's not what Barr was doing. If you can constrain and cabin the alleged harm to something so minuscule that you've kind of hived off all the wrongdoing around it, then it's very, very easy to come to the conclusion you want to come to. And so in much the same way that, as we've said a bunch of times, no collusion has no meaning, so did no quid pro quo, so did the Alan Dershowitz theory that if the president does it in order to win an election, it's not a legal. It's just a trick. And as Ian says, it's a defense lawyer's trick where you distort the meaningful crime to be nothing. And then you say, since that didn't happen, there's nothing else to see. And when you get a Lamar Alexander or a Susan Collins or a Lisa Murkowski saying, well, 
he didn't do this one teeny tiny thing that is now all I am laser focused on. You're abdicating your responsibility to look at the bigger the bigger picture. And so I think it's not just this is artful defense lawyering defining the crime out of existence, but it's also a way to kind of misdirect the jurors or the public to look at a thing that doesn't exist as opposed to the entire totality of wrongdoing. So it's just the same play over and over and it relies upon a public that is kind of willing to be led there. And and what this did was, what this press conference did was allow Trump to keep saying, no collusion, see, no collusion. Because if you listen to that press conference, that's what you, came, you kept hearing, no collusion, no collusion, no collusion. Uh, this was Barr doing you know, the bidding of of Donald Trump and ill-serving everybody. And he really should be gone. This guy should be gone. And it's a disgrace. And the fact that he's still there now after the president continues tweeting says a lot, doesn't it? Yep. I guess I would just say, did you ever think we'd miss Jeff Sessions this hard? Oh, that <laughs> reminds me. Jeff Sessions was the chief law enforcement officer of the United States. And so now is Bill Barr. But Trump thinks he is, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. Do you, Am I depressing you guys? You just sound like I'm, I'm just bringing you down. Can, can I make you happy with another thing? This is Bill Barr at Notre Dame talking about uh, the importance of, uh, of virtue and being religious uh, for democracy, I guess, basically. So let's, let's listen to this. Please listen carefully. Men are subject to powerful passions and appetites and, if unrestrained, are capable of ruthlessly riding roughshod over their neighbors and the community at large. No society can exist without some means of restraining individual rapacity. But if you rely on the coercive power of the government to impose those restraints, the framers believed, this would inevitably lead to a government that is too controlling, and you would end up with no liberty, just tyranny. Okay, anybody's irony alarm go off? I saw a picture the other day in the paper of some SWAT teams um, that were being deployed from the southern border into cities around this country, um, armed vehicles, people designed, as experts have pointed out, to you know, siege, lay siege on, on sort of violent criminal gangs. I don't remember the attorney general as um, a legal advisor to the president um, voicing those concerns uh, when the president made that decision. In the past week, if you've been watching what's happened at the Justice Department, somebody has probably commended to you the famous speech that Robert Jackson gave in 1940 called The Federal Prosecutor um, because he was trying to talk about the just unbounded power that a federal prosecutor has under the current system. I'm just going to read 
one line from it. Uh, this is Robert Jackson cautioning uh, federal prosecutors about the enormity of unbridled power. He says, quote, the prosecutor has more control over life, liberty, and reputation than any other person in America. His discretion is tremendous. He can have citizens investigated. And if he is that kind of person, he can have this done to the tune of public statements and veiled or unveiled intimations. Or the prosecutor may choose a, may choose a more subtle course and simply have a citizen's friends interviewed. Uh, he goes on, the entire thing is a cautionary statement about what happens when uh, the federal prosecutorial machinery decides to gun uh, for somebody and and destroy their life. And I just think it's such an interesting moment when we're seeing, you know, Jim Comey and Andrew McCabe and Lisa Page and now apparently, uh, uh, I guess, the Bidens and uh, the four <laughs> prosecutors who uh, prosecuted Roger Stone. Everybody is subject that to that kind of the Venmo. threat that the government is going to Vinman, Vinman's brother, uh, the threat that the government is going to ruin your life, that the Justice Department is going to go after you uh, and find whatever they need to find to ruin your life. And that is exactly the kind of thing that Robert Jackson charged federal prosecutors with not doing. So to me, the idea that we can reopen cases that are closed, we can close cases that are open, depending on whether you're on the right or wrong side of this president's naughty or nice list. It is just chilling. And it's kind of where we started. But I think that it seems like an abstraction to Robert Jackson. Jackson, it was not an abstraction. And Bill Barr knows that. Well, and, and there's somebody who definitely knows that and who fully agrees with it, as Al just pointed out, which is some person who spoke at Notre Dame named William Barr, and someone should introduce that guy to the attorney general. I just want to repeat one part of that paragraph. Men are subject to powerful passions and appetites, and if unrestrained, are capable of ruthlessly riding roughshod over their neighbors and the community at large. Okay, powerful passions and appetites, and if unrestrained, capable of ruthlessly riding roughshod. Anybody? Anybody? Mind you of anybody? Anybody? I would say Donald Trump. <laughs> powerful passions and appetites it was i especially a downer today was i i think it's appropriate for the mood right now this is a call to action it's a call to action to every listener we can complain about this all we like but <laughs> the important thing is to take some action between you know right now not 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 tomorrow right now Wherever you're listening to this, pull off to the side of the road if you're listening. You're listening in your car. Pull off. Whoa, wait, wait, watch. Look out. Look out. Signal. Signal. Wait for us. Get on the shoulder. Okay, you're, you're doing that? Okay, good. And now uh, look up Stacey Abrams. Find the uh, name of her organization. Fair fight. And uh, give them some money. And But also volunteer them how's that that's good wait before they get back on the road yeah wait stay on the side of the road for a second there 
uh, before you get back on Side <laughs> Road, also do, do, do check out protectdemocracy.org where we got reams of information about how to get smart on the issues that we're seeing, the arcana that I used to police when I was in the White House Counsel's Office that kept our, tried to keep our government honest, right? tried to keep them making sure that they're working in the public interest, um, especially on these issues that, that we've been talking about here today about the Department of Justice's independence and that longstanding tradition and where it comes from. Um, so join us, sign up there. Um, we'll keep you informed in ways you can also stay engaged and, and Fair Fight is a wonderful organization too. Before you uh, turn on your turn indicator and gently ease back into traffic, one other thing I would say, uh, just to amplify what what Al and Ian are saying, which is there is a part of this that is just the 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 basic Steve Bannon playbook: flood the zone with bullshit. Right? Just have people exhausted and depleted by <laughs> not knowing what is true and what is not true, and fake news and real news, and who knows what's going on, and I don't understand. I would say one other thing is just find your three sources of news that you trust, and don't get kind of completely jerked around by a news cycle that is designed to make you <laughs> give up on the process. And uh, it doesn't matter what it is, but let it be something that is committed to accuracy and transparency and, and correcting its own errors. I think one of the real problems, and I say this as a journalist, is that people are exhausted because they're inundated by so much garbage that they don't know what is true anymore. And this really is the Putin playbook, is just have so much that is out there that people are destabilized and don't believe anything. And I think part of heading into the 2020 election is just not being at the mercy of a bunch of untrue bubbles and really, really commit to not share information that's false and to commit yourself to the proposition that the truth is knowable and that you have a role to play in that project. Very well well said. Can we all agree that uh, everyone's going to pull their car over and and do a thing? Maybe that'll feel better. Pull your car over. If you're at the gym, uh, get off the treadmill or when you're done, uh, do something for God's sakes. (laughs) Join something. Give money to somebody. The ACLU. Do something. Jesus Christ, everybody. This is is it. This is the time. Got to do it. Okay? Hey. Thank you, Ian. Goodbye. Dahlia, always great. Always great talking to you. Well, I I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast 
once upon a beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.